Okay, welcome everyone. Um, let's start now that it's quiet. Uh, welcome to the LSE's Literary Festival, uh, which has the title Foundations this year. Um, my name is Hans Steinmüller. I'm a lecturer in the Department of Anthropology. Um, I work on moral change and everyday ethics in the countryside. And today we're going to talk about uh, something related to values and morals in China, which is the Chinese dream and its different meanings. Um, the Chinese dream was declared uh, now more than two years ago in the November of 2012 um, by Chairman and President Xi Jinping as the new keyword in a very highly publicized speech in the National Museum in Beijing as the new keyword of uh, propaganda discourse in the People's Republic. But uh, aside from propaganda, it means much more. It's, it also relates to the dreams of ordinary people. It's perhaps a sign that material development is, is not enough any longer or that uh, um, government discourse has to recognize that. And um, not only inside China, but also outside China, perhaps it's a sign for the need for a more sophisticated uh, discourse of soft power of the People's Republic when China's influence is everywhere felt, uh, especially in the Global South, from uh, Southeast Asia to Africa to Latin America. And it means many more things about which uh, our three speakers are going to talk today. Um, there is, in the middle, uh, Kun Chon Chan, who is a writer originally from Hong Kong. He's a public commentator. He's also made films. He's been active in many areas of culture. He moved to Beijing in 2001 and has been uh, living and writing there since. Um, from his many works, two books are out in English. One is called The Fat Years, and that has a particularly close relationship to the Chinese dream. Uh, published in 2009 uh, in Chinese and 2011 in English, it's a dystopian fiction about a China where everyone is happy. Uh, it was written in response to the world economic crisis of 2008, um, and we will ask him later whether he sees some of this uh, dystopia or utopia of uh, China where everyone is happy and uh, China's the new superpower has been realized. Um, there's Isabel Hilton, who is a writer and broadcaster with a distinguished career in um, print, radio, and film. She has written about almost all the major news outlets. Uh, she's, written, she's worked for almost all the major media in this country, uh, The Independent, The Guardian, Granta, the BBC. Um, she was a former editor-in-chief of Open Democracy, and she's the founder and editor of uh, China Dialogue, which is a website where... China and the world discuss the environment where um, people concerned about the environment from China and from elsewhere come together. And finally, Bill Callahan, who is Professor of International Relations at the LSE, um, who's written uh, a number of books, amongst which there is China, the Pessimist Nation, and most recently, China Dreams. Uh, the book came out almost at the same time when Xi Jinping declared the China dream, the new keyword of uh, propaganda discourse, and um, this probably speaks of uh, the kind of spectacular intuition and uh, good sense of the, the pulse of the times, which Bill had, um, because he was, he was not relying on government discourse, but mainly on 
uh, intellectual discourse. So it's uh, a survey of the intellectual landscape of China leading up to 2012. So I, I'll ask uh, the three speakers um, for five minutes plus presentations, and then we have a discussion here. Please switch off your mobile phones, and if you want to tweet about the event, uh, the, hash, the suggested hashtag is LSE Literary Festival, LSE Lit Fest. Um, after the event, or after our discussion, there will be time for question and answers, and uh, there's a book sale outside with um, Bill's China Dreams and Kun Jong's uh, The Fat Years and his last book uh, called The Unbearable Dream World of Champa the Driver. So I'll start uh, with asking Bill to, to start us off. Okay, well, thank you, Hans. Um, thank you for organizing this. Hans was the person who put this all together, so we should give him a round of applause. Um, I'm very happy to be here. I feel kind of dwarfed in the shadow of my colleagues who are kind of much um, more thoughtful than I am. Um, I'm just, I guess I'll give a little background on the China dream as I saw it developing before it became official Because people often forget that there was a lot of talk about a China dream or a Chinese dream before it became official, as Hans mentioned in uh, November 2012, when Xi Jinping said that the, uh, his China dream is the dream of is the great dream of the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Um, I think that this China dream discourse uh, has a lot of interesting peculiarities. That it comes out of a very particular time and place comes out of a particular time in the 2000s when China was growing really rapidly. Um, we take it for granted now that China is an economic powerhouse, but in 2000, 2001, when China joined the WTO, there was a lot of concern within China that it was, it was going to run into problems, that WTO would sort of stop the development in China. That was the new left comment on it. But what happened in the early and mid-2000s is that the Chinese economy grew so fast, it outgrew people's expectations. Um, not just what the IMF thought about it, but what Chinese economists, even the ones who were really boosters of the Chinese economy, were, were um, surprised at how fast the Chinese economy was growing. And the society was changing and adapting and loosening and tightening at the same time. And I found that this was leading to a lot of discussion in China. So a lot of uh, public intellectuals and some officials um, in the mid to late 2000s were perplexed at this. They were very excited that China was doing very well, but they were very anxious about what was going to happen. There was an enormous amount of anxiety and uncertainty in this. And that's why I was writing about China, the Pest Optimist Nation, that is both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. The dreams and nightmares um, I found were often interwoven. Um, and that the main question that a lot of the people that I was talking to and a lot of the people that I was reading were asking were not the same questions as in, in the West. Um, the questions that I found were very much about identity politics. People, Chinese people are asking, what does it mean to be Chinese? Who, who, who is China? The, the, grammatically, that doesn't make sense, but that's sort of the, 
the sense that I got, people asking, who is China? You know, who is the world? How does China fit into the world? And this led to other things of what direction is China going in? So there was a lot of people saying it should go this direction to be more liberal. The new left people saying it should go that direction to be more statist. But they're all arguing about the same anxiety about uh, what would happen in China with this rapid change that was sort of undermining social values. Uh, some people were talking about China as a um, uh, kind of a bankrupt moral state that had, there was this moral crisis, moral panic, I guess is what you call it, uh, elsewhere. And there were lots of responses to what, what China, the Chinese government, and the Chinese people should do in response to this moral panic. And one of them was the China dream of the Chinese dream. And this was important because when I was looking at it, it was at, a again, a special time. First, this time of rapid expansion, but also rapid development of social impacts like corruption and air and water pollution. Um, it also happened at the time of the transition from the fourth generation leadership to the fifth generation leadership. So I saw that a lot of people, um, including Kun Chung, were writing about what China should be and where it should go and what it should do. Um, there was kind of a, an opening, I, I felt anyway, between about 2007, 2008, and uh, say 2013, um, where the, the control over discourse and public discourse on the net and in the newspapers was seemed to be relaxed a little bit. And I, I thought that this was because it was a transition period and people were trying to kind of uh, catch the attention of the new leadership and tell them, kind of do a, uh, an election campaign but through the media about where China should go. And this is where the China dream, This to me, this is the kind of the social context where ideas like the China dream um, can come from. And um, now it's closing again. Maybe we'll come back to this later. Uh, as of the summer of 2013, I would say, when the, was it the nine don't discusses? Seven don't discusses? Or nine? Yeah. I can't remember. It's the nine document seven. seven document seven, 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 nine. Seven, nine. Document nine, seven, don't I'm not, I'm not, Chinese enough. I can't remember the correct <laughs> numbers. It's all magic um, numbers. So yes, you don't discuss uh, universal values, don't discuss civil society, don't discuss all of these things that, that now they say are uh, Western values. And this had a lot of impact on the people that I worked with. So I was trying to organize a conference on civil society um, and I was working with a partner in Beijing and initially we were going to have it in Beijing at their university but that didn't work out, and then I thought, okay, we'll have it in London. Um, and that had to be delayed and delayed because of various things. They, you know, nobody tells me why it's delayed. I can only um, infer that there were, it was sort of a hot topic that people didn't want to deal with. And um, when we finally had it, about half the people couldn't come. They said they were going to come, <coughs> the universities wouldn't let them come for whatever reason. So I guess my point is, is that uh, often we think of China as kind of progressively opening since the reform and opening um, movement started in the late 1970s, but I think it's much more 
um, accurate or interesting to see it as this kind of living, breathing society that's sometimes opening and sometimes closing, and it's it's never really clear, at least not to me as an outsider, um, when and where it will open and when and where when and where it will close. Um, have I been talking for more than five minutes? Um, maybe I'll just stop there because I know that my colleagues have other things to say and I have other points that I can come back to in the conversation so my point is the China dream comes out of a very particular situation of a rapidly changing China and the China dream is just one of the responses to this is that okay? that's great Thank you, Hans. Thank you, Bill. Uh, thank Hans for organizing this, and for, uh, thank London uh, School of Economics for inviting me, um, so I can meet with old friends like Hans and Isabel, and finally meet um, Professor Callahan, Bill. Uh, I met Hans when he was just finishing fieldworks in Hubei, uh, doing anthropological fieldwork. Hans can speak Hubei Chinese. <laughs> I, 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 my Mandarin is accented, but just like my English. But um, I can't understand Hubei Mandarin. A- anyway, um, Isabel, uh, we know for some time now. And then, um, apart from his very perceptive commentary on China, he uh, operated this um, admirable NGO China Dialogue, and um, and very informative um, environmental issue related. Um, uh, website and uh, uh, it, it was read widely read by NGO people in Ch- inside China and um, Professor Callahan I've been um, reading your uh, one of the earliest articles about uh, the Tianxia by Zhao Dingyang so that's when I, I started to to know about about you and um, um, we've been talking this afternoon, so I'm really glad that I, I, I've come. Um, I, perhaps um, I would, since um, Professor uh, Bill has made all the introduction, I probably, probably I should um, do something a bit different from um, China Dream, uh, talking about China Dream direct, directly. I'll, I'll try to talk about the talking of China a bit before I t- turn to China Dream. Talk about the talking of China, right? Okay. Um, you see, um, we all know China is a big, <coughs> huge country, and it's not a monolithic country. It, it, you can say, almost say it's pluralistic. That doesn't, doesn't mean China doesn't have its own um, fundamentalist. We have all kinds of fundamentalists. We have communist fundamentalists, free market fundamentalists, Confucian fundamentalists, Christian fundamentalists. But since it's a huge country, and now we have no, um, what do you call it, Archimedean um, point to talk about China. Um, there's no, uh, okay, there's no panoramic viewing deck that you can see everything uh, about China. So, whichever idea you have, probably you can find some evidence to support your view. But that also means that whatever view you have, you can be contradicted by somebody else. So, you see, that is why um, Bill came up with this very um, 
intelligent book called Pessimistic China. That is why um, I, several years ago I wrote an article saying that we have to, to, to what? Saying that we have to um, learn the trick of a Tang Dynasty songtress called Jiang Su, who reputedly can sing two songs with one mouth at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but most of us who, who try to talk about China, we cannot do that. Tang Dynasty is um, about 1200 to 1400 years um, um, uh, in the past. And uh, since we are not Jiangsu, how are, how are we going to talk about China? So we always do this on the one hand, on the other hand. That is for the more nuanced approach. Most, most people would just have a very positive view of China or very negative view of China. Those who are supposed to be in the know try to be more nuanced. Uh, no, nuanced? Nuanced, right. Try to be more layered when they, when they talk about China. So it's some, something like this uh, when we talk about, um, about China Dream. The party is fully aware of the situation, that China is a, you can talk about China in many ways. So the party is doing two things. One is it tries to emphasize what is good about China. It may admit certain hiccups or minor, minor mistakes, but basically it wants to distract you from focusing on the bad, bad side. The party can also do what? It can claim to rep- uh, represent all that is good about China or all that is good um, in, the, in people's mind about what one country should be. I'll give you two example of e- uh, one example of each. There, was a, uh, 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 there is a video by the Communist Party called The Chinese Communist Party is with you on the road. It's a very well-made um, video. Um, I, I read out some of the lines, then you understand. It said, um, well, it's very well made, almost like a um, uh, um, promotion PR or PR um, corporate image video. And um, it, it didn't really mention um, um, communism that much, and it, it didn't even use a lot of these symbolisms. Uh, but um, the, 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 the lines are like this. This is an ancient and youthful country. It's growing fast, yet with development disparities. It's full of opportunities, along with untold challenges. But it's 1.3 billion people all have their own dreams. Then, then the, 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 uh, go to the people. I want a good harvest next year. I want to start a diner. I want some more pensions. I want a pretty wife. I want a bluer sky and cleaner water. I want a world, a world free of wars. Our people's dream are our goals. The 80 million CPC members together with the entire population, are working for everyone's dream. For every dreamer to have a stage, and for every dream seeker 
on the stage to have an opportunity for success, to have the joy of a dream come true. Every splendor on the stage contributes to the Chinese strength of 1.3 billion, that makes a miracle after another, and embraces one challenge after another. On the road, chasing our dreams, we walk side by side, sharing wealth and woe. Will and woe. Will. Uh, will and woe. Oh, so oh, yeah. uh, transcending differences and shaping the future together. The Communist Party of China is with you on the road. So it, it's a feel-good um, uh, publicity. <laughs> Very sophisticated. It could be well, I don't know, from from the city of Toronto or a UNESCO um, promotion or even a corporate promotion. So this is one way to do it. Emphasize the good side, and this uh, video, by the way, is mainly for foreign consumption. Uh, when diplomatic um, tours, uh, they were with diplomatic tours to, to other countries, they will show it to the people there. The, um, the other way is to to represent all that is good. You see, um, on the 18th uh, Con People's Congress, there were 24 words. Um, Emphasized that actually it's 12 pairs of words, 24 words. It's called uh, the socialist core values. And they are 12, uh, actually 12, pair, uh, 12 uh, values. They are prosperity, democracy, civility, harmony, freedom, equality, justice, rule of law. Patriotism, dedication, integrity, friendship. So these are the core socialist value. Uh, apparently, China is honoring these values. So you have all the good values in it. Then, when you, when when people when, then uh, there will be interpretations. So all these good words, and then there will be interpretations. And. Uh, uh, there, the more interpretation there is, the, the more um, um, tendential purposes will be shown. For instance, um, in one article, it was said, universities has to strengthen ideological controls in classrooms and telling professors to champion Marxism, <coughs> traditional culture, and core socialist values, to oppose encroachment of Western values. So, you see, this is the way to do it. Have, all, have the party representing everything that is good. Then defining, eventually defining what, what these good things are, and then channel people to, to follow um, and avoid certain things. So, um, the same is with China dreams. Initially, Xi Jinping um, talked about China dreams. It, it emphasized national revival. And then, it, at one point, it even um, emphasized military strength. Then, when, when, the, when, when the, the publicity department tried to promote this idea, they asked people to, to, to chip in. And then, eventually, they, they, they include 
individual happiness into it. So you see, um, it, it, a word like um, China Dream, inviting different interpretation, but initially the idea is to channel it toward a kind of national and collective ends. One um, the, uh, People's Daily website article tried to contrast China Dream with the American Dream. And it's very telling how um, they understand China Dreams. It said there's, there, was, there were seven points. It said China's dream is about a, a country's wealth and strength. American dream is about personal uh, uh, wealth. So China, China must put a country's wealth and strength in first position. Two, China's dream is about national revival. American dream is about individual success. When the nation's weak, you, you'll be, people will, will stand on you, step on you. Three, China's dream is to be fulfilled by Chinese. American dream use other people to, to fulfill it. Immigrants. Enslaved. Oh, yeah, enslaved probably. Um, In Chinese contract workers. <laughs> the fourth China dream is collective, harmonious, and uh, with harmonious happiness. American dream is about individual happiness. Fifth, China dream has the depth of history. American dream, it's practical experience. Sixth, China dream relies on collective work. American dream, its individuality expanded. Um, seventh, China dream is about nation's glory. American dream is about individual's glory. You see, uh, the American dream, they didn't mention um, the American constitution of freedom, happiness, or, or equality that probably is part of the American dream, but that was left out. But you can tell, though they, they, they try to include all the good words in, in, in defining what is China dream, including personal happiness, it's always the nation or the country that, you, that they, they will try to, to conclude it or uh, making you think that without the, a strong nation, a wealthy nation, individual happiness is not possible. So that is um, the way to do it. Have all the good things first and then define it. Um, but having said all that, inside China, since everybody is trying to chip in to uh, the, the state, encourage people to say, what is your China dream? So people come up, did come up with all kinds of ideas. So it, it, even um, a, a something like China Dream has its own ambivalence. And in a way, it's a kind of a subversive ambivalence because different people can use this to um, put forward their ideas and then uh, to contest the mainstream um, orthodoxy. So there's a, it's a kind of a contested idea. And the except reason why um, the, 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 the party always want to um, direct people to, 
to have a kind of a consensus that follow the party's line, the party's um, interpretation of certain words. But they may not succeed all the time. There was always contradicting viewpoint put up by different people. Um, the party is, is trying to do this, as I've said, through first a kind of PR, PR whitewash, just emphasizing the good thing and try to let you forget about the bad. And then secondly, through this very elaborate way of um, censoring, censorship, so you will avoid talking about very good thing, uh, some, some good points. I think I'll, I'll, I'll stop here. Yeah, thank you. I'm sure we'll, we'll continue uh, picking up on some points in the discussion. I hand over to Isabel. Well, thank you very much, Hans, and thank you very much for, uh, for organizing this um, and for the pleasure of the company of my, um, uh, which I'm sharing on the platform. Um, I don't disagree with anything that's been said. I, I, so thinking about what I could add to this discussion, I think that one question that you might well be asking if you don't, I don't know how many of you know China or how well you know China, is why does Xi Jinping need a slogan at all? Why did he need the Chinese dream? Well, this is, for me, the way that Chinese politics has, has been evolving in the last 30 years, in which... Communist Party leaders, presidents, general secretaries have been reaching back into a, a deeper political tradition for an identity uh, which can no longer be kind of maintained as a, as a Communist Party identity. So, and this really starts in, in 1989 um, when, when you have to rewrite history in the wake of, of Tiananmen. So skipping over the Republican period, which has some rather inconvenient ideas for the party, and going back into an often mythologized imperial past where you find a sage king who is wise and guides the nation and, and all that kind of thing. There's a strong element of that. So that you, if you look at what... Um, and you have a problem in, in, in 1989, of course, because you have to... You know, the Communist Party has put tanks against people who were in Tiananmen with their own dreams of where China should go, which were greater political participation for the people and an end to corruption. And these are ideals that the party itself claims to believe in. So you have a problem. You have a problem of being the party of the people. So the, a big project is launched to rewrite history at this point and to rewrite history in a way that uh, justifies the continued monopoly of power by the party and the narrative that, that emerges from this and which is supported by a rash of museum building and memorialising and, and is that China is it's a narrative of Chinese exceptionalism. So China is the oldest continuous civilization. It has a polity all its own. Uh, other rules don't apply. Its path is, is singular and distinct. Um, and um, and that... Uh, what was I going to say with that? Um, so, <laughs> so, so, yes, it's a narrative of exceptionalism. And China was doing extremely well until the foreigner came. And all of Chinese modern troubles derive from the incursion of the foreigner. Who got rid of the foreigner? The Chinese Communist Party. But the foreigner still lurks at the gate, ready to destroy China's future. And so you still need the Communist Party. So this became a neat historical justification for continued power. But if you are no longer plausibly 
um, promising a, a communist utopia, and you are still the Communist Party of China. You have somehow to segue from Maoist millenarian and uh, socialism into what is essentially a state capitalist project which has gross inequality, it has an underclass, it has extremely rich people and, and you still have to do that whilst not breaking with the founding father's narrative so somehow you have to fit this progressive segue into uh, the Communist Party tradition it's kind of intellectual ancestor worship if you like, so with every new slogan it was set into a, a, an allegedly unbroken line of thought. So Mao Zedong thought becomes, you know, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening up. And then we have Jiang Zemin's, the three represents, the point at which uh, rich people could join the party, capitalists could join the party. And then Hu Jintao uh, has harmonious society. So an end to class struggle. Uh, we are still the Communist Party of China, but now we're talking about harmonious society. Um, Harmony had rather a curious reception because it was used as, as, as indeed the China dream has been used to eliminate other ideas. So if you were oppositional, you were non-harmonious. And this, of course, began to be played with on the Chinese internet. So when a website was taken down or a blog was closed or you know, somebody was removed from the internet, um, uh, they began to say, I've been harmonized. Um, so at one point, the census had to ban the word harmony, despite the fact that it was the official slogan. So this was a little complicated. I once had to listen to a, a poor man, uh, and uh, you know, scholars and intellectuals had to labor away, fitting the notion of harmony into the Marxist tradition, right? And so I had to listen to a 45-minute paper on Karl Marx and harmony, uh, delivered by you know man who had sweated blood over it. I mean, it, it, it's it's extremely painful. But and you have to ask why it's necessary. Um, but it is necessary because it is about establishing a claim to an unbroken um, and 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 satisfactorily evolving tradition. And so that's why Xi Jinping needed a slogan. And that's what he came up with was the, was the China dream, a very, very spongy idea, um, I have to say, and one which it took people a little while. I mean, as, as, as Chris has said, the, the idea was around before he adopted it as a slogan, and one of the most successful iterations of it was, um, was a book written by a, a, a retired colonel called Liu Mingfu, uh, the China dream was a dream of military resurgence of, of, uh, of China's military strength. And that was certainly in its initial presentation how Xi Jinping uh, portrayed it because he announced it at the, he announced it before he became president but after he'd become general secretary in the uh, National History Museum which had gone, which had undergone a very long and complicated refurbishment because scholars were arguing about history you know, and what was this National History Museum to, to, to present? What was it to say about the 1950s, for instance, or the 1960s? Or, you know, uh, what was it to say about the Cultural Revolution? So this, it, it opened very late um, and, and, and to some people very unsatisfactorily. So, so Xi Jinping goes there and he goes to an exhibition of, uh, you know, uh, was it um, 100 years of national humiliation. China's the only country where they celebrate national humiliation. National Humiliation Day, never forget. Um, and this was one of these memorializing exhibitions which I, I was talking about. Um, and he 
presents the China dream as a dream of national strength. Uh, you know, we, the party, will restore China to its rightful place on the, on, on the national stage. The problem with dreams is, of course, that everybody has them, and people don't all dream about the nation being strong. And, and the, 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 the China dream evokes, of course, comparisons with the American dream and the, you know, the individual nature of the American dream, but also the attractive nature of the American dream, which I have to say has persisted. Whatever you might think of, of the hollowness of American politics and the unfairness of American society, not to mention American foreign policy, it still has the power of attraction. Um, and, and people go there to live the American dream, whether they succeed or not. Nobody goes to China. You, you're not going to get a flood of migrants going to China to live the China dream. It's not that sort of dream, and, and China doesn't want you to think that it is. Um, so so you, have, um, you have, nevertheless, contested dreaming. And, and I, was, I was very amused by, by Kun Chang's... Um, uh, you know, the, the party is with you on the road, uh, which at, said, at one point says, you know, the party is working for everyone's dream. Not really. Um, as as the, there was a famous liberal newspaper in China called, it's the Southern Weekend Group and Southern Weekly, in that little interlude between Xi Jinping becoming General Secretary of the Party and President, which he did at the National People's Congress in, in the following spring, New Year published their own uh, version of the China dream, and it was very, very different. It was a dream of um, a constitutional China, a China with rule of law. All the things, um, as as, uh, as Kun Chang says, have been have been ruled out. And I'm just going to read a little bit from that editorial. It, it appeared, um, well, it was meant to be published in New Year of, of 2012. It was censored. Um, the censorship provoked a strike uh, in the journalists, which was then uh, repressed. So it says, today we dream not only of material wealth, we dream also of the enrichment of our soul. We dream not only of stronger state power, we dream also of the dignity of the people. Between renewing the people and renewing the nation, between salvation and enlightenment, none can do without the other, and none can override another. And constitutionalism is the foundation of this beautiful dream. So that was Southern Weekend's dream, Southern Weekly's dream in 2012. Um, constitutionalism is one of the, the, the aspects that, you know, of Chinese political life which might have developed in this phase, which has absolutely been ruled out um, under, this, uh, under this government. So we have contested dreaming. Uh, we have deviant dreaming going on. Um, and, and we have, a, I, I think, a, I, I don't know if you agree with me, but in the last uh, couple of years, what, what we have seen and experienced is, is a, a tightening up of this insistence that the dream is a national dream, a dream of a great nation. Now, for more than 100 years, Chinese people have been arguing in this great mosaic of a nation about what China is and what it means to be Chinese. And this argument continues. It's one of the great conundrums of China, that it's easy to see from the outside what China is, if you like, but it's much harder to agree from the inside what China is. It's, it's hugely diverse. Uh, and, and so you have, in this national dream, a revival of Confucianism, which doesn't mean very much if you're Tibetan or, or, or Uyghur or Mongolian or other people who have different dreams from the, from, from the dreams of Beijing. 
And, and it, it talks of a kind of common history and a common past, which, again, a lot of people contest. So eliminating deviant dreams has become a bit of a theme in, in the last year or so. Um, and and I, what I fear for the Chinese dream is that it will develop into this muscular assertion of, of resurgent power. Um, and that crushes a lot of people inside China who continue to have a different dream. There you go. Thanks, Elizabeth. Uh, sorry, Elizabeth, that was right. Isabel. If I want to take directly on, uh, pick up one point of what you said, it's a contest of dreams. Um, so there are lots of different dreams. And somehow, nevertheless, there's this background of national humiliation. You know the place where uh, Hu Jintao, together with several other members of the Politburo, first announced uh, the dream in November 2012 was this permanent, permanent section of the National Museum of China uh, called Fuxing Chulu, yeah. the road towards rejuvenation. And I remember I went through that section uh, a little bit earlier, like a month or two earlier, uh, and I, I felt very uncomfortable somehow as a as a Westerner, like a white Westerner, because, because this is all about the kind of uh, bullying done by me and my compatriots and, and the other Europeans and Westerners towards China. And Japan. And Japan. But somehow, somehow I, I, Particularly felt, Japan. I felt included <laughs> and I felt like uh, as an outsider. And I, I must say, sometimes, you know, a lot of, a lot of this is perhaps also uh, very much about our discomfort as Western observers and our difficulty at understanding Chinese propaganda discourse. Because if we take completely the opposite perspective, um, given the, the increased plurality and uh, you know, multiplicity of pluralism of Chinese society now, perhaps uh, the Chinese dream is really the best slogan that Xi Jinping could come up with. Um, it, it is really grounded in, in some social reality where people are looking for, searching for spirituality, where there's a growth of Confucianism, neo-Confucianism, where people are going back to religion, feeling some kind of you know, spiritual... Uh, Vacuum, and in, in intellectual discourse, as Bill has worked out in, in his book. Um, but aside from that contest of, of different dreams, there's, there's also perhaps the feeling, well, we, maybe we just don't understand Chinese propaganda at all, and it's not so meaningful. I mean, ordinary people will always tell you it's just propaganda. It doesn't, doesn't mean that much. So that's, that's a, well, an answer I certainly get, get a lot in China. <laughs> Um, one moment I find very remarkable is, uh, uh, was a conversation I had with Kunjong uh, a few years ago when his book was just out in Chinese and on the back cover of the book of the fat years uh, there was a, a series of slogans uh, ten slogans I think which were very, very similar to propaganda slogans they were just a bit more exaggerated so, so exaggerated to the point where they were really um, bizarre and nonsensical. So, for instance, there was a slogan like uh, uh, so like uh, scientific development with Chinese characteristics or um, so like a rule of law where security is first and um, obviously he made, it, he made it up. I mean, that was, that was a parody but the interesting moment was that uh, when I asked Kunjong for the reactions to his book, 
he told me that, that actually not only once he had readers, he met like in these culture events, book launches where he talked about his books, readers who came up to him and told him, that's great, <laughs> that's exactly what China needs. <laughs> that's, that's, it's, it's, it's perfect. And that has actually been a, a, a common reaction to, to the book. So, so not, people, people thought that was not satire, that was not irony, but that's, that's the kind of realism of power which is so, so prevalent in China now. So um, if I want, I may, I may take this further by asking Kun Jong what he, what he thinks of these developments and the developments since the book has been published, like now five, six years ago. So it's that kind of uh, cynical and sarcastic relationship towards the realism of power. Is that, is that any stronger or less strong in China now? Well, uh, the party, you know, has a, indeed a long history of um, using words, trying to monopolize the good words and then, again, monopolize the interpretation of these words. For instance, um, the Communist Party would say, would say China is a democracy. It's only a democratic, centralized, a centralism kind of democracy. It was said China is a multi-party uh, state, but it's a multi-party state led by one party. <laughs> but that's their way of putting it. Um, it's all, all, in all the official literature. Um, uh, China Dream probably is something like that. Um, uh, in, in the Southern Weekly um, issues, they, they have been uh, organizing China Dream um, conferences every year since 2009. I was in one of them. So it was before Xi Jinping. And um, that um, the Southern Weekly's version of China's Weekly is always about the uh, constitution, rule of law, you know, good, better governance. Uh, it's very much in contradiction to the militarist Liu Mingfu's uh, vision of, of, of China. You mentioned the, the revival, uh, the uh, road to revival uh, exhibition. Uh, it was very indicative. Um, it's not only an exhibition, it's, they also have a huge stage performance of the same name. But if we compare this 2009 Road to Revival with our earlier extravaganza, 1964, the East is Red, we can see how the party has changed. In the East of Red, the East is Red, the story was, the narrative was, China it was a feudal society, and um, there was there, there was a it was a class society with class. So we have class conflicts. We we want class struggle. We want to get rid of the feudal elements. That was the 1964 East is Red. The equally stage launched uh, public publicity campaign, including stage shows, exhibition. But by 2009. The road to revival. Um, this, the, the narrative, the story became simply: China was used to be great. Then, foreign imperialists came. First, the Westerners, then Japanese. Fortunately, the Communist Party saved China from all these, and then leading China to uh, the road of revival. Um, all, all the. Um, Subtleties were gone, and then all the uh, atrocities done by the communists themselves during the, the 60 years of communist rule 
were, were, were um, um, not mentioned. So it's a very simple story now. It's um, all about Communist Party not only saving China from the hands of imperialists, but um, leading China toward a better future. Everything was blamed on the imperialists. And so we, can, we have to vi- revisit all the China's past glories and then uh, draw lessons from China is- itself, turning to China's past to draw the lesson for the future. So that is the, essentially the, the mood. And the, the, under this general mood, everything so-called Western will be, will be, which will be cleansed in a way. The, the media and, and publication companies are doing that already. Um, even in the universities, as I've mentioned, you are not supposed to, to teach Western values. Though by Western values, they didn't include communism or Marxism. So um, it's again very selective. Um, before 2008, the, the mood tend to be that China is opening up a bit. I, I think for about my experience, for about five to seven years, China did open up since year 2000, leading up to 2008 Beijing Olympic. But right after that, the mood changed, probably because of Beijing Olympics. Because of the year 2008, the very eventful year, where there was an economic meltdown in the West, and then China had this um, big show, the Olympics, the Chinese become more confident. And as a result of that, they, they would think the West is no big deal, and we are probably more correct than we think. So um, uh, many people's mentality really changed during, uh, in, in that year. And since then, it's been emphasizing the, the Chineseness, the Chinese um, traditions, and the trying to revive um, the, the, all the virtues. And 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 then um, with this message coming out, the 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 the, the, uh, the sophisticated censorship and uh, um, suppression machine start kicking off. So it's getting tighter and tighter. Um, you know, it's not easy to publish books that um, promote Western values, for instance, um, uh, or publish an article in the, in the magazines. Um, certain professors known to um, go for so-called universalist values were named and, and attacked uh, verbally uh, on, on, the, on the media. So it's getting tighter and tighter, as you said, true, uh, since 2008 starting probably with um, sentencing the Nobel laureate Liu Xiaobo to 11 years imprisonment. So, so the fact that Mo Yen won the, the next one didn't make a difference? Um, no, no, <laughs> no, 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 didn't, didn't change the trend. <laughs> no, reconfirmed that China is going in the right direction and is being recogn- finally right. being recognized uh, with a Nobel. Uh, one, of, uh, one of my colleagues says that China has a, um, a Nobel obsession, that, the, that there's lots of ways that Chinese elites sort of measure their progress, and it's things like the Olympics, uh, the World's Fair in Shanghai in 2010, um, and Nobel Prizes. But it has to be the right Nobel Prize. It can't be a human rights or a peace prize. It has to be like literature or science. 
So yeah. Somehow. And now football for, apparently. Yeah. yeah. Xi Jinping is very upset that China's football doesn't. <laughs> yeah, no. As <laughs> the only the latest state project. It. Yeah. Didn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> but in all this environment, I mean. For instance, here at LSE, we have ever more Chinese students as, as all over the Western world, but especially in the UK and in the United States. So all the, the relatively you know, comfortable people and, and uh, government officials, they send their children to, to the West to study. And there's still, of course, a, a great obsession, especially with America. Um, in Bill's book, uh, the, last, the, the China Dreams book, the last chapter is entitled Chai America. So, so about kind of the, the crossing of the American and the Chinese dream in um, Chinese people's lives. But you would nevertheless agree with Kunzhong's point that there has been a tightening up in the last few years. Sure. I guess what I would... I'll, I'll play uh, devil's advocate and say that... Um, whereas you're saying there's an ambiguity between individual dreams and state dreams. And you're, you're, I think you were suggesting that there's been a crackdown on more individual dreams. I think that there's been this tension between um, sort of the China dream as an individual dream and a collective dream and the China dream as a constitutional dream and a martial dream and that they're both going on. And there's a whole bunch of these other kind of paired opposites. Again, this mm-hmm. pessimist kind of dynamic. Um, keeps reproducing itself. So it's very hard to say, oh, there are no individual dreams, because there are lots of individual dreams, um, but they're within a certain framework. So some individual dreams are okay so long as they support, this is my argument, individual dreams are okay so long as they don't contradict the collective or the national or the martial dream. So you can dream of having uh, a good life and having clean air, and you can dream of um, opening up a diner, all of those things. So I think that that is that shows that this this campaign, this propaganda camp, propaganda campaign, is is working at a, at certain level. That it sort of sets sets the frame in which we can discuss Chinese society and Chinese politics. And as you were saying, each new each new leader now has to have a slogan and. The slogan cannot contradict any previous slogan. I think you said that, but I'll just underline it. So uh, if you look at the way um, Xi Jinping and the Central Propaganda Department talk about the China dream, it includes everything from Mao, well, actually it goes back to Sun Yat-sen. It includes all of the sort of accepted Chinese leaders. Um, and this is, this is something that's very interesting and curious about China. Because it's a one-party state, you can't criticize your predecessor. Uh, you can only do it sort of um, indirectly. And it's just, it's a very interesting thing. So it's very hard, to, this is I guess while I'm, I'm still confused by it, is that it's such a multifaceted thing and every, whenever you try to nail it down, it goes somewhere else. Um, and that's why the China dream is a very powerful way of thinking about aspirations in China because it's, it's ultimately it's empty and it's our job or it's the job of Chinese people to fill it up with their dreams whether they're individual or collective or national or martial or constitutional but at the same time it's very derivative as we were saying it's, it's very clear that somebody said oh the Americans got a dream we got to have one too um, so it's derivative 
but it's also very Chinese. So it's, it's mm-hmm. you know, I guess it'll keep me busy for a while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I well, I, I working. Let's see. But I wasn't saying there were no individual dreams. I, I was saying um, that. I suppose the genius of the China dream is that it presents the national dream, the dream of a revived nation, as the enabler of individual dreams, as in the propaganda video that Kun Chung says, so long as the individual dreams also support the national dream. And that's the second half of it. So that if your individual dream is is not deemed to be in support of the nation, then then you're not part of the big collective dream and that and that is how it's being argued um, and that is why people who uh, dream of a you know a different form of life in Xinjiang or somewhere else um, they are not part of the national dream because they are undermining the nation or and if you actually if you it's quite interesting to look at the preambles of the American constitution and of the Chinese constitution and the American one is one rather short paragraph which basically says you know this is we the people. Go for it, we the people. The Chinese one goes on for pages, and it says, before you read the Constitution, you must understand that, you know, the Communist Party is right, uh, Taiwan is part of China, and it goes on and on and on. It lays down kind of everything that you, you know, your long, deep breath before you actually get into uh, the, the Constitution. The preamble. preamble, preamble the Constitution. is kind of flattening, so that if you try to argue the points of the Constitution, the constitutional text itself, as people are trying to do and trying to say, you know, the constitutional dream is that one day China will obey its own constitution and the party will obey the constitution. That would be nice. And, and so the party says, well, actually, yes, but we are obeying the preamble. You're looking at the, you know, page three. And, and so, you know, Chinese, Chinese political discourse does have all these ambiguities, profound ambiguities in it. When China, when, when Hu Jintao talks about about democracy or, or rule of law or constitution, he does not mean what an American means by it, which is that the leader himself and the party should be subject to the law. No, 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 no. Um, everyone but, you know, should be subject to the law. And that's actually quite explicit in the preamble to the Constitution. So I think with dreaming, too, you have to read the preamble. <laughs> you have to read the preamble to the dream uh, to check whether your individual dream is going to make the cut or not. Yeah, the frustrating part is um, the party has a powerful publicity machine and a very elaborate um, censorship uh, uh, mechanism. So it, it, uh, it's easier to have the party's view out. Sure. The individual has less... Um, reach. Even an, a, a very influential newspaper, Southern Weekly, which by the way is also state-owned, um, would get into big trouble. After this infamous uh, editorial ca- calling China Dream as a constitutional dream, the, the all, practically all um, editorial staff were either sick or or, or, or change, move to other positions. And so this, now it's a different Southern Weekly already. Though they're still very um, intrepid journalists and um, commentators inside China, they, uh, and, and it, you, you have the internet, of course, and the, and the blogs, but it's not as 
um, easy to get your words across now. Uh, this, this, the, the sensors are catching up. I mean, the sensors are not really done even by the state employees. They are done by the portals, portals themselves. The portal have a license to, 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 to protect. So they will delete your, your, your words for the government, the, the, for the few major portals. They, they hire thousands of so-called internet nannies to, to, to do this job. So they overkill all the time. So it's getting difficult. I have my, uh, this experience too. My first book, um, uh, the, the, um, the Fat Years, was on the Chinese internet and downloadable as free content for at least six months. But my second book was on the internet within the Chinese firewall. Or immediately it's deleted. They are getting better and better. I downloaded it. <laughs> you downloaded it? You, 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 you succeeded? <laughs> but nevertheless, you, you stay in Beijing. I mean, given we are at the literary festival, what, uh, what interests me a lot is the, the conditions for, uh, you know, for writers in, in Beijing. And uh, you, you speak about all these difficulties, but nevertheless, somehow I... I assume you think it's, it's still a very exciting environment. At least it has been very inspirational for you. No? Oh, yes, for me, I, I think I need to be in Beijing to write about China. Not everybody needs to do that to write about China. But, but uh, I, I was saying it was a very sophisticated uh, censorship mechanism because, um, you see, uh, my novels, the two novels, The Fat Years and The Champa the Driver, were not publishable in China. But I have five other books published non-fiction books published in China. So uh, I belong to, they have degraded people, you know. In my case, they only censor some of my works and they allow some of my works to, to be published. Other writers may, 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 may fare worse, but some, some, you can't even publish your uh, uh, article on the magazines, not to mention books. So they, 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 they really Oh, are getting very sophisticated now. Well, what is exciting about Beijing that keeps you there? Is it just that you have to be there to write about China, or is it, is it well, fun? Maybe because I was not originally from China. Um, I mean, I live in Hong Kong. I grew up in Hong Kong. And I only um, really get to know China when I was 40 years old, which is 1992, when I first worked in China. Since then, I've been inside China. Uh, I, I, um, maybe somebody from China, they don't need to do that. They could be in Germany, and they still write about China, something like that. But Beijing, you know, it's the cultural capital of China. And it's always exciting to be there, because um, there are many um, uh, intellectuals from the provinces. They, they will visit Beijing. And when they came... They want to talk. Beijing is the only place where can, you can talk freely, or people dare to talk freely during meals, during dinner, for instance. They, on the dinner table, they talk freely, or they, they, they try not to be afraid. Outside of Beijing, it's the, the, the atmosphere is worse in, in, in many ways. So these provincial intellectuals, when they came to, came to Beijing, they always invite people to... Uh, and, and then everybody... When they sit down, they start talking about serious issues in, inside China. That's the good part. 
in in Shanghai, for instance, they won't talk about China. They will talk about Paris. They <laughs> <laughs> were always a bit like that. <laughs> what are they talking about right now? Um, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping, uh, of <laughs> and uh, and uh, chairman the of everything. Hong Ai the second generation uh, um, red nobilities. Okay. It, but it is, but it is. He's a fascinating study because you know, as you say, um, well, he is chairman of everything, and there has been um, some debate about whether he is returning to Maoism, um, and I sort of see this and I don't. It's one of the many kind of fascinating contradictions in China that that you know when I when I first um, studied in China, you kind of had to begin every essay with Mao Zhushi Jiadaom, and, you know, um, as Chairman Mao tells us, and, you know, then the essay would kind of not get, you know, thrown out in the first paragraph. And, and the way that propaganda was done, which was, you know, the elevation of the thought of Chairman Mao to sort of godlike status, and it had to be in everything, I find this all rather similar. I was looking at the instructions on propagandizing the China dream, which are very interesting. So lift high the mighty flag of socialism with Chinese characteristics, integrate Deng Xiaoping theory, the theory of the three represents and the concept of scientific development to guide reform and development in the capital, extensively promulgate the import. This goes on for pages. I won't read it all. The importance of realizing the Chinese dream of the great juvenation, etc. So that's the kind of setting it into the, the, the canon, uh, which, as we said earlier, you're not allowed to... Um, to read. So the development of Chinese dream education and propaganda work must closely revolve around studying and promulgating the spirit of the important speech that Secretary Xi Jinping delivered whilst visiting the road to the revival exhibit. So you have exactly the same technique. So you take the leader's speech. It's then disseminated. Everybody has to study it. And it has to be integrated in, into everything else. So if you went to a conference or any event in China around this time, suddenly everybody had to preface their essay, as it were, with, you know, the China dream thought, so that everything that was said had to tie back into the China dream. And people know they have to do this. And this is very like, you know, some things have not changed. So many things in China have changed beyond recognition. But, you know, you burrow down into the kind of propaganda directives, and you think, this is all rather familiar, they may not be received in exactly the same way. People have much more freedom to ignore them or to laugh up their sleeves or to you know, produce funny internet memes about them. But, but the methodology, the notion that, this, that the leader's thought should be at the core of everything you do, that's still there. That's true. What did your teacher always tell you? You found Yes, I would. Yes, that was the other nightmare. It'll be on my gravestone at, um, in the, in the right. languages industry. You how should we? And she is the but we. Although the grammar, the grammar is correct, the meaning is wrong. You know? in, in a way, uh, that the tradition hasn't changed. Study the, what the leader said uh, yeah. from Mao's time and Xi's time. Um, but um, during uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, the previous two uh, head, the, the enthusiasm was much lower. Yes, indeed. This time... That's come back, yeah. It, it's really, I mean, yeah. euphoric. Um, there, and there are so many publications about yeah. what she's uh, saying. But having said all that, uh, obviously, she, um, um, re- the, the mouse thoughts really in Xi's mind. But having said all that, he is also deliver, deliver, delivering 
um, the words that Ma would never say. As I've said, I, I just mentioned that the, the 24 words uh, core socialist <laughs> value is everywhere in Beijing now. In, in all these um, major, uh, I mean, the big uh, play cards or, or, or yeah, billboards. All the billboards. Yeah, the twenty-four the, yeah, words. In the subway. Yeah, prosperity, democracy, civility, harmony, freedom, equality, justice, rule of law, patriotism, dedication, integrity, friendship. Um, I'm not sure how we we would do this. <laughs> friendship. Friendship. Your son. Your son. This is official translation. Your uh, son was translated as friendship. Fu Chang, probably we, we understand. Um, prosperity and strength. Uh, uh, or wealth and, and, and power. But democracy, wenming, uh, uh, civility, harmony, freedom, equality, uh, equality definitely, rule of law, justice. Mao is against rule of law in a way. So, and anyway, so Ma, uh, Xi is trying to have it both ways. He is trying to have it both ways. And, one of the, and I, I, I haven't been able to find it again, but I remember watching um, a, a short video of a little demonstration, maybe about 15 rather elderly people standing there. They're reading out their text. And the police come in and start you know, breaking it up. What were they reading? The thoughts of Chairman Mao. And who didn't want the thoughts of Chairman Mao? They were reading all the bits about its right to rebel. You know, they were reading all those bits at a time when harmony was the, was the dominant mode. Um, and and it, was, it was an extraordinary... <laughs> extraordinarily bizarre moment. I mean, surely there, there are all these continuities in the uh, Chinese official discourse and, and the way it's propagated and the way it's taken up and the way students have to write about it and uh, party members have to include it in their statements and thought reports. But um, there are certainly also differences. I mean, what I always find remarkable is somehow that... Uh, uh, these official slogans always speak of a lack. So when you when you say harmonious society, that what it actually means is that society is not harmonious. Yeah. And and so uh, the China dream is also, I mean, speaking of this lack, or it's pointing at a at a problem. I mean, I I, I would like I would insist that actually it does make a lot of sense. Um, maybe if I make this into a question for for Bill, I mean, other than inside where where Chinese society is more plural and uh, diverse than ever, then also outside, I mean, there's a new assertiveness and there's, there's certainly a need for a kind of a Chinese message to the world, um, perceived both by China and by, by others. Well, yeah, I mean, Xi Jinping at the uh, APEC conference last November, which was in Beijing, um, he started expanding the China dream, or Chinese dream is now the Asia-Pacific dream, and a lot of people including foreign ministers and ambassadors, have been talking about uh, the world dream, um, the world dream and the China dream and how they're all interlinked. So I mean, my, my analysis is that, well, not my, one of my colleagues in China wrote something about how it's a three-step process from going to the China dream to the Asia dream to the world dream, and that so that the world will be, will welcome China as a leader. And so it's, it's, it's you know, People are imagining how China can um, replace the West or replace the U.S., and this is one of the ways they imagine it. It's in terms of this dream discourse. Um, but I thought we were going to open it up to questions from the audience. 
Yeah, I think we should. We should. I mean, now that we've, we've said Patient so much. People. So we, we, we still have plenty of time for, for questions. Please wait. There's someone with a microphone who will come to you. Let's start in the first row. Hello. Um, please, uh, please stand up and say your name. And oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> um, my name is Shidong Lai, and I'm, I'm a Chinese student from UCL. Uh, my question concerns about nationalism, because uh, what I take from today's lecture is that we have concluded that maybe the slogan of China Dream coming from the official political discourses maybe is a kind of uh, nationalism that the party wants to strive, uh, strive for in, in its people. Um, so my question is, is that uh, nationalism as a translation is equal to be in, in China and when as young people in China in high school we're all, we were all required to learn something about or memorize some slogans or some materials about nationalism and then we didn't really like it but then in, in China at least in general, that it was not regarded really as a bad term. But when I came to the UK, came to the West, and I learned that actually in the political discourse, mainstream political discourse, nationalism is regarded as something that's really hegemonic and we maybe should get rid of it, we should strive for some um, more cosmopolitan traditions, we try to deconstruct all the um, homogeneous myths that the nation has come up with. Um, but then in, in, in this way, I always want... But then even in the West, there are lots of neo-Marxist uh, scholars that are trying to argue for the alternative nationalism. So I'm just wondering, what role do you think uh, nationalism can play, whether led by the party or not, in China's future as a developing country? Thank you. Can I keep, pass this question to Bill? You're um, a political scientist. Yeah. Um, What is very curious is, to me is that even the, the new left in China has decided that even though they'll speak a cosmopolitan language, that they'll act in terms of the nation state. So they're promoting China as a strong state, state capitalism, state society, civilization state, whatever you call it. So that's quite curious to me. Maybe you can comment or disagree, but it seems that the new left people that I read are really... Um, not that not a left in a, in this cosmopolitan socialist sense anymore. Um, as far as the China dream is concerned, that's one of the things that I really noticed about it. If you go from uh, Hu Jintao's notion of scientific development or harmonious society or harmonious world, um, those can be very cosmopolitan. Anybody can have harmony. You could say it's a Confucian concept, but other, other civilizations and philosophies have harmony. But when you get to the China dream, it's China, China, China. It's China dream, China spirit, China path, what else? China model, China everything. So it seems to me a very narrowing of the imagination in China to focus, as Isabel was saying, on China as this exceptionalist civilization state that has something to, to teach the world. Could I just add something to that? I mean, I, I called you, I would probably translate as patriotism. I mean, there's a word in English, you know, between, between patriotism and nationalism, there's a kind of, it has a different, um, slightly different ring. And that there are um, the the Scottish political philosopher Tom Nairn uh, wrote about nationalism as a Janus-faced, a two-faced thing. Um, perhaps the concept should be easy to understand in China. Um, that that it, it can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. Um, and I think one of the questions 
for China uh, over this nationalist wave is, fine, so who does the nation belong to? Is this a project of the emperor or is it a project of the people? Uh, you know, I come from a small country that has a nationalist party and just had a referendum on whether it should leave the United Kingdom. I find it very hard to imagine that being, you know, that, that approach. And it was a very, very civilized referendum. And it, it, it was, uh, as a form of nationalism, I think um, not, it wasn't racist, it wasn't anti-foreign, it had lots of recent immigrants in it. You know, it was a notion of a nation as something constructed by the people from the bottom up. And I think that's a kind of nationalism uh, that you find quite a lot in small countries. Um, it's, nationalism, of course, as a state project, has a bad reputation and a poor history. Um, so maybe that's one of the reflections I would have on uh, yeah, Chinese uh, nationalism. Uh, yeah, a brief follow-up. Um, a noted uh, Chinese scholar, um, Xu Jilin, has said um, that China's left and new left had turned statist. Statism, statist. Yeah, they turned it. Uh, they made a turn to the right. Yeah. Next question. Here, please. In the second one. Hi, good evening. My name is Renner. I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Um, well, my question is: Where does Hong Kong fit into the China dream, or the China dreams? If you're talking about dreams below the state level. Do Hong Kongers still dream of China? <laughs> I think this question has to be answered by uh, Kun Chung because he just told us earlier today that uh, already in the late 80s he wrote uh, a series of essays about the Hong Kong dream. Um, thank you. Um, well, I think um, since um, the... the the end of the Manchu dynasty and the starting of this republican period and leading to this communist time, um, unification has always been one of the arch theme for most nationalists um, in, in China. And uh, um, Hong Kong was considered one of the places that had to go back to the motherland um, though the communists has um, consciously given up on liberating Hong Kong since '49, they would they could do it any time. But for practical reasons, the practical side of communism, of, 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 of the uh, Beijing uh, um, ruling elites came up, and they decided to leave Hong Kong uh, as it is for decades because there's an economic gain for China until the 80s when Margaret Thatcher visited China and forced on the issue. So unification, there, there's no stepping back for any Chinese leader to, on the issue of unification, but they can live with um, um, at least time that, so Hong Kong can, can um, get, contribute to the development of, of China. Um, so that was the, the, the history. I'm sure now Hong Kong has gone bad, but Taiwan hasn't yet, uh, to, according to the nationalist point of view. Um, um, Hong Kong still has its value um, to, to China, and it, there's, no, there's no problem that Hong Kong is part of China now. It's a one country, two system um, arrangement. So 
Um, I, I'm not sure I have answered your question, but the, the, the answer is Hong Kong is part of China now. And that's a fact. Is, is the Hong Kong dream different from the China dream? The Hong Kong dream is very much like the American dream. That <laughs> you, can, you make it, you will make it. The only difference, as one um, Hong Kong sociologist said, sociologist said, is uh, the Chinese people are more family oriented. So they, it's not just individual, it's individual plus the family. Here's the next question. Hi there, uh, I'm George, I'm a master's student here at the LSE. Um, so you've talked about um, the plasticity of the notion of the China dream, that it's something that takes everything in, and you've implied that the harmonious society was very similar in that sense, that it took the wider notions of people's dreams and made it into one concept, you can make anything you like. So in that sense, what do you think might be the next notion that does this? Do you think there's some obvious sort of uh, notions of maybe nationalism um, that can take on this idea of sort of an all-encompassing uh, philosophy? We have six years to worry about that. <laughs> Five, I think. Um, I, I, I don't think I want to propose the next slogan for the next Chinese <laughs> No. Well, I mean, I think you're right that it, um, it's, sure, it's a bunch of policy and intellectual entrepreneurs trying to promote things, but they won't need, or there's no reason to do this until the next leadership comes into power. And the latest thing I heard is that um, Xi Jinping admires Putin, and therefore he wants to go beyond his two five-year terms to just sort of keep being the chairman of everything. Is that true? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I have no knowledge of any national secrets. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. We know you do. The man in the third row, please. Thank you. My name's Ian Orr. I and I spent a career mainly in the, dealing with China in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I think my question builds on the metaphor of the Chinese dream, uh, and it's already been sort of hinted that uh, people in the different beds in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, in, in possibly the diaspora as a whole may be dreaming somewhat different dreams from the unified China one. But my question is, to what extent is the Chinese diaspora, the influence of China overseas, of people going to work and study overseas, to what extent does that form part of the China dream of contributing to global civilization, not just Chinese civilization. I can um, the Chinese government is very good at organizing overseas Chinese communities and um, cooperating or penetrating or whatever the overseas Chinese um, associations. And there's been a shift in the past 30 years from the people who were overseas. First it was people from southern China and people who were um, anti-communist or didn't, you know, didn't feel they could fit into the PRC. But in the past 30 years it's shifted to the people who were born and raised in, in China 
who's gone abroad. And I think that, and I've seen some things written about it, that this sort of notion of China as a strong, a wealthy and strong state appeals a lot to overseas communities, as it would for you know, any overseas community, whether it's Chinese or, or any other country, um, that they like to see their, their homeland or their home country doing well, and it, it reflects back on them. Um, I mean, at a practical level, I was talking to uh, Professor Wang Gangwu, who's a very famous Chinese historian, who was born in Indonesia and grew up in what is now Malaysia. Um, and he told me stories about how Chinese, ethnic Chinese people were treated really badly uh, when they were abroad before, that the customs officials and the immigration officials would treat them just as sort of substandard people. And that this, that's, that's how uh, Gang Wu sees the China dream, is that um, China being respected, Chinese people being respected, and especially when they're overseas. So I think that the China dream actually works quite well. I mean, we can ask people in the audience here. Um, it seems to work quite well with an overseas audience. I think that there's so many diversities. I mean, uh, 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 according to some survey, <laughs> only less than 10% of Taiwan people um, still think consider themselves as Chinese. Mm. I'm sure the Taiwan people are not sharing the China dream now. Uh, in Hong Kong, probably something similar is happening too. That I think there are questions about how much of the Chinese elite really shares the dream. There are also surveys, although quite how authentic they are, which suggest that a very high percentage of wealthy Chinese envisage their future abroad rather than in China, much higher than you would expect. If the China dream had see, succeeded in creating a sense of the future, which I think was partly what it was about, you know, what, what is an, imagine, an imagining of the future doesn't seem to have stuck with the, with the wealthier um, sector. That may be about the anti-corruption campaign, um, but, but nevertheless, it's striking. But I think that when these Chinese elites go abroad, they will suddenly rediscover their Chineseness. Not, mm -hmm. not to say they won't enjoy being in Vancouver or Sydney or wherever. Um, but it's this sort of dynamic that I didn't become truly American until I came here and people told me how horrible my country was. You know? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's have a question for further up. Uh, maybe right there with the white shirt. Further up, further up. I'm Hamza, um, undergraduate at LSE. Um, my question is, uh, we've discussed the China dream and how it's an instrument of propaganda discourse within, from within China. But do you think there is also an inherent bias and, and a sense of cynicism when looking back at China from the Western narrative, where we are quite cynical and skeptical of, of you know, lack of civil liberties, etc., which, which are you know, wrong in, in the Chinese society, but we, we don't give credit where it's due. What the Communist Party has managed to do uh, for example, a large uh, the exercise of poverty reduction in human history. I would much rather be a poor person 20 years ago in China rather than India, which is a, a, you know, a champion of Western liberal democracy. So do you think we have to have a more balanced approach, a more objective approach to, to what the economic engine in China has managed to do to, to you know, peasants who were very marginalized before Deng or before 1990s? Thank you. Well, um 
as a novelist, I'm against all kind of simplification or reduction. Um, of course, I'm sure there are, um, but it's always uh, very difficult to understand another culture. We are, in a way, always biased toward other people. So th th there may be bias in the Western view of China. I, I, I can even say that within China, the, we, we Chinese have all kind of bias against China too. So, but um, the, 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 the point is, try to avoid oversimplification and um, um, over-abstraction and try to learn more. And, and that is exactly what, at least as a novelist, I, I'm trying to do. literature specialist, and I was interested to hear you just mention in passing Mo Yan, and my limited reading of Mo Yan suggests that he is much more part of a Chinese nightmare than a Chinese dream, and I wondered if you could say a little bit more about how he is regarded. Is the Nobel Prize of the Swedish Academy punishing China and raising the status of a bad boy, or does he have a different uh, view from Chinese in China? I, I remember asking this question to uh, another friend of mine, uh, a writer called Yefu this summer, and he's, he's known as, a, as an independent writer. There's kind of a simple bifurcation or separation between writers who are within the system and writers who are outside the system. So he is someone outside the system, and uh, uh, he recognizes Moyan's uh, achievements and uh, a lot of his writings are, are great and very very funny and entertaining and also very good descriptions, very deep descriptions of Chinese society. But he, he said that he thinks Moyan is uh, not taking a political stance. But, but I, I don't know if you have to do so as a writer. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. For, for me personally, it doesn't take any, anything away from the, the quality of his writings, the, the fact that he is, he's not a politician. But um, that's just my perspective. I don't know what uh, other Again, Chinese writers... Mo Yen's case is a very good example of how complicated it can be. Um, Mo Yen's um, novels, most of them, um, uh, was, uh, were about um, a, 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 a country side um, in... Uh, uh, um, a place in Shandong, an uh, agricultural area uh, uh, in, with a uh, village. It's all about that area. And uh, through the novel, you won't want to live there. It's, as you <laughs> said, it's terrible. It was terrible. Uh, um, uh, but, and, and then he was punished for that for up to probably year 2004. That year, he published one of his, novel, his novels, and the publisher was sacked because publishing it. So up to 2004. Then the, 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 the party realized that Moyen's kind of magical realism won't hurt the so-called subversive symbol, symbolic uh, um, thing would not hurt the party. So they decided to court him. And he, he, Moyen was with, with a military writer, so he was uh, in a way in the system. But for some time, he rose as his outside of the system. The, co the party courted him back to the system, and he now the 
vice chairman of the Writers Association in the national on the national level. And uh, politically, when he's not writing as a novelist, he could be quite pro uh, Beijing, pro regime, pro authority. Uh, he says something like, um, um, "Censorship is like um, um, security check before you board a flight." Something like that. But, but actually, we were just saying that that if you look, if you read contemporary Chinese novels, they are dark. They are very dark. Um, Yan Yangke, who, who published again another case of, of someone who writes highly critically um, about contemporary China, but has had most of his novels published. There's one about which is uh, just been published in translation, or being published, I think, next month in translation, which is about um, uh, the Great Leap Forward and, and, and the mass starvation. And he hasn't, he was not able to get that one published, but. Lenin's Kiss, his Dream of Ding Village, which is about the Henan blood-selling scandal and the AIDS epidemic that followed, um, uh, Serve the People, which mercilessly satirizes the political... They were all published. Um, so it is, you know, um, it's complicated, but it's quite hard to find a successful Chinese novelist with a kind of cheery, optimistic outlook. <laughs> you know, it's not a lot of it about... Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid it's already uh, 35, so we, we, have to, we have to close. We, I have, let's have one more question, one last question. Here in the fourth one, please. The lady yeah, and the gentleman. <laughs> have you had your gender balance <laughs> you, you right here? <laughs> I have a question to uh, uh, Chen Ku, Mr. Chen. Uh, is that um, uh, you have discussed uh, how Chinese government mon- monopolized the uh, definition of keywords uh, being used. Um, but like, um, I have some personal experience about this. Like, uh, I've seen many universities in China have already had courses to encourage students uh, to read and operate discussions on both modern and the classical definitions of various values and morals. Hundreds and thousands of translated works of uh, both like uh, Western philosophy and also works of other fields, both of course Eastern and Western, uh, have been published every year sponsored by Chinese Intellectual Association um, and other independent publishers. Also like, uh, I know you have a very intimate uh, relationship with Sanlian, uh, which is a, a the, yeah, and Sanlian has also been coordinating an event called Sixiang Guangchang, which means uh, the intellectual symposium. And, um, so I'm a bit confused about your uh, perception of this lack of free speech. So, and I wonder why you have this kind of point of view. Thank you. Thank you. You remember uh, in the beginning I said um, it's um, China's a big country. You can always find evidence for everything to support your view, right? Um, China definitely translated more Western work than most countries in the world. Um, probably China is the number one in terms of translating English literature and current um, non-fictions from different uh, from all kinds of European languages. It's really true. So that's, that is how complicated it is. It's a huge a country of, of contradictions. On the one hand, they are 
there are so many Western works importing to China. On the other hand, the, the official media is telling everybody to shy away from Western values and uh, don't, don't really uh, buy into them. So it's all there. The, the thing you have to realize is, since there are so many titles, the, the, the more harmless title, let's say, were translated. Some harmful le- or, or really subversive titles were left out. But it's only human not to look for those because you, you, you probably are satisfied with having so many things to read at hand, novels, everything. And then there are a lot of public, published works, the, the more political one. The, trans, the Chinese translation left out something. Again, probably the readers would not know. Books from Kissinger, for instance, or Erwin um, Vogel, they, they deleted certain sensitive parts with the consent of the author. And there it was an issue recently that some author refused to, be, um, to have the translation work uh, simplified over the original one, and their books would not be published. So uh, as university students or intellectuals, we have to aware what we've been missing. And don't be overwhelmed by the availability of all kinds of titles. So that is one message I really want to to say say aloud. Yes, China has so many things. It's a big country. It's a great country. There are so many um, um, translations work going on. So many scholars visiting China. All kinds of seminars every day in Beijing. But be attentive. That's all, all I try to say. I think that's a very nice way to conclude. Um, thanks to our speakers. There, this is the literary festival, so you can buy books outside, uh, Konjung's books uh, outside, and Bill's books outside. They will also be available to sign the books. And please join me in thanking them for creating. Them.